This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Today, you're hearing from Dr. Stacy Ruhal, professor in the Department of Exercise Physiology at Eastern Illinois University, my alma mater. Back in 2009, I had the opportunity to complete my master's degree program in exercise physiology and as a graduate assistant, and Dr. Ruhal was the director of my program. So in this program, we got to work with the undergraduate students, we got to teach, we got to learn about cardiac rehab, and we did EKGs, and we worked with the surrounding Charleston community. And it was a great experience for me, and it's where I learned a lot of what I still use today. We learned how to work with special populations, people that have diabetes and high blood pressure and osteoporosis. We learned how to measure for risk factors, so people that have a higher risk of heart disease and cancers and strokes and how to work with those populations. So you can say that it was there where I really got my first touch of passion when it comes to the subject of prevention and how to help people avoid these major health events. Dr. Ruhal has been a big influence in my life. I owe her and the Eastern Illinois program a lot of credit for where I am today. And I've learned a lot from them, and I know you will too. So, uh, yeah, enjoy today and listen in. All right, this is the Lifestyles Medicine Podcast, and I am on with my former professor, uh, Dr. Stacey Ruhal. She is the professor of exercise science and exercise physiology out of Eastern Illinois University in Charleston. We got to spend a lot of time together, which was maybe better for better for me than it was for her. But uh, thank you for being on, Dr. Ruhal. Yeah, my pleasure. Do you want to share a little bit about your role uh, with the university and, and your background? Sure. So I've been with Eastern Illinois University for, um, well, I'm starting my 20th year of teaching this fall. Um, and so I teach in the Department of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation with a focus on students who want to pursue personal training, strength and conditioning coaching, cardiac rehab or stress testing. I'm also the director of our EIU Adult Fitness Program, which is a community-based outreach program to try to get adults in the community to come in and exercise, but also to give our graduate students an opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with the community members. And then I also, um, my other connection with Eastern is that I graduated from the same program that you did. So I have a graduate degree from Eastern in that same field. And so I've had a long standing relationship with EIU. How much or in what way has the program changed from when you were a student to at some point you were the director and you were leading this program? Um, what are the big changes that you've seen? Um, so pretty significantly, I mean, we started off when I was a student, the department was physical education and Eastern has always been known as a very strong teaching institution uh, who, you know, developed and, and graduated lots of teachers. And so physical education was a huge part of our department. And it, that's why that was the name of our department. Um, we had more than half of all of our students in the department were physical education majors. And so I was in exercise science. Um, it was still called a physical education degree, but with emphasis in exercise science. 
And so then, um, you know, there were a few rough years where uh, we had decreases in enrollment, we had decreases in funding from the state, and we had a lot of changes happen. Um, So when I first started working, which was about three years after I graduated with my with my master's degree from Eastern, we were still physical education. We were starting to see a lot more of a uptick in numbers for students pursuing more of an exercise science-based degree versus teaching in phys ed. And so um, very quickly then, through my first several years of teaching, our exercise science area began to grow quite a bit. And we actually saw a significant decline, actually, in physical education teaching students. And that had a lot to do with different things going on within our state and across the nation. Um, And then now, it seems like um, we're starting to get more physical education students creeping back in. But we have a very strong exercise science degree program. We have a very strong exercise physiology graduate program. Um, We also have uh, developed a sport management and sport administration degree programs. We have kind of um, enveloped the recreational administration department into ours, and we have that department as well. And so it's, it's vastly different than when I was a student and when I first started teaching. And you said you've, you've gotten a big uptick in exercise science, just interest. As a whole, this industry has really changed and changed a lot because of the interest in the education side. I mean, as a manager and as an owner, I have seen significant more resumes come in with degrees um, than I did even three years ago, um, let alone 10. Any idea on, on really what, where the interest came in to grow this as a degree, the grown interest there? Well, I think that it, it came from a lot of different avenues. So first of all, I think that we as a nation started realizing that our health was a significant issue. Um, and that through the research that was done in particular with regards to preventative types of health issues, we realized that if people were moving more, they tended to have less physical problems. And so, and, and not just physical, emotional, uh, spiritual, all kinds of things happen whenever you move more. And so I think that that was one of the things that happened I discussed the decline in physical education as being both a state and kind of a national program uh, or problem. And I think that after the effects of that started to come forth and we started to see that, okay, taking physical education out of schools is probably not the best thing that we could have done for the kids. And we started to see some of the short and longer term effects of what that can happen. Um, We started to see, again, a need for exercise science and a need for really researching how does exercise impact the body, how does it impact a student or a person's overall well-being, health, um, what kinds of things do we need to know as practitioners in exercise science uh, with regards to prescribing exercise. You know, it's still not where I would like to see it. We still have a lot of people who just go out and get a a certificate and, and they're certified, you know, through XYZ company and then they're working as, you know, personal trainers. And unfortunately they don't have the science background of knowing how the body responds and what kinds of consequences we would have in not training people correctly. Um, So I, I definitely think it comes from all different directions. We have so much more research now that supports what we do that supports the importance of having the educational background besides just getting that you know, certificate that you can get online. And I couldn't agree more. It's 
there's, there's been such a growth in good continuing education, which is awesome. I've taken the majority of it. I've just, I'm, you know me, I, I enjoy the learning part. But I credit my base of knowledge that I have to the ability to really get the most and as much as I do out of these continuing education uh, components. Is there a lot of continuing education talk post-degree? Because I know I feel like I'm seeing more of that as well. So after people finish both undergrad or graduate, you know, like, like we went through, is there more interest in that that you've seen? Certainly. I think that uh, continuing education is something that I, as a professor, for example, preach all the time. You know, I tell my students, once you walk across the stage with that diploma, that's not the end of your learning. That's just the beginning. And so we just kind of introduced you, or at least my philosophy in teaching is to introduce my students to the basis of how to learn about the subject and the, and the kind of foundational things to keep in mind. Um, but hopefully my students um, understand the importance of then reading literature that's research, you know, research that's published in the literature, going to conferences, learning about what's out um, and what's new and there's a lot that we still haven't discovered yet. There's a lot that still needs additional research, especially when you're looking at special populations. And so I think it's just the very tip of the iceberg. Um, the great exciting thing about this degree program and this, this profession is that I, I do believe there's so much more that we can do and learn about it. That um, It certainly is a continuing process. I learn something every year. And that's my goal is to make sure that I revise and incorporate and, and look at the current research and just keep learning and learning as much as possible because, you know, we have no idea what kinds of health issues we're going to see. Um, you know, some of the things that we see now, we didn't see 20 years ago when I started. Um, and so I, I certainly think that there is a push for continuing education. You'll also see that, you know, I, I strongly believe in certifications, especially after you earn a degree. And some of those higher end professional certifications, I believe, are really important. And all of those typically come with a continuing ed component. If you want to continue to be certified, you have to continue your education. You have to show that you're you know, participating and learning in the profession. And so, yes, I think that's an extraordinarily important part of it. Yeah, well, and that you brought me because my next question was going to be about how fast research changes. And it, it's rapid. I mean, this from an industry standpoint, it's still it's still a baby in a lot of ways, right? Where, like you said, every six months, every year, there's something that we thought was concrete that it comes back and we're like, eh, maybe not. Right. How fast do you see changes then from the research hit the curriculum? I mean, are they pretty big year to year changes in the way, I know you individually teach it different, but what about from like a university standpoint? Does that change pretty quickly too? Um, so I think the foundation is still pretty pretty standard, right? So you have to know how the body uh, reacts under stress and exercises stress. And so I think that a lot of that foundational kind of stuff is pretty standard. However, what isn't standard is, like I said, the, the new disease processes that are creeping into the public. Um, you know, how does the body of someone who has diabetes how is that impacted by exercise? And certainly we have, you know, decades of research on diabetes, but I think that we're learning more and more um, about the disease in general. And therefore we start to learn more about how exercise impacts the disease more specifically. And so, you know, the, the guidelines book that I use in my teaching is usually updated about every four or five years. I find that in between there, we see some pretty significant 
research studies that arise that uh, lend us to start changing the way that we teach about certain topics. Um, so we can't really wait until the new textbook comes in. Um, and, and certainly it's getting better with the more e-learning opportunities and more, you know, texts online and things can be updated much more quickly. Um, but there still is a lag in what is published for textbook reasons versus what we see in the research. And so that's one of the reasons why I think that students and professionals even should be reading the current research, you know, frequently. Uh, I try to read new articles every single week to try to see what's out there and what's being updated and, um, you know, even things that we think are, you know, can't change much, you know, like you talk about progression models in training. Um, you think, okay, well, we have linear, we have nonlinear. It hasn't changed. Well, yeah, it really has. There's so many components to that, um, that when you start looking at the research, you know, and the, the different variables, whether it's looking at people who are previously sedentary versus active people, looking at people of different age categories, different genders, uh, people who have disease and who don't. And so there are all these other variables that we need to research and, and really come up with solid guidelines. And so, yes, that changes often and we need to stay updated. It's really, really important to do that. A goal of mine coming into this conversation was to enlighten people a little bit on just what a degree, what an exercise science degree is. Because I think people still think personal trainer and there's still some, some bias and some um, stereotype there. We did so much with special populations, not just in grad school, right? Even those, those, those last two, you know, 40 and 50 in, in undergrad were very, very heavily special population based. Do you see this, this window of distance between what we do and the medical world, do you see that gap closing a little bit to where we are getting more involved after college with these special populations? Cardiac rehab's a big one. Like that, we, that was like a, a big one. But some of the others, I've, I feel like that gap is closing in a good way. Mm -hmm. Certainly. So I, I think that you know, just as um, the fact of the matter that our professional organization, being the American College of Sports Medicine, is a sports medicine as a whole organization, you know, that that in itself bridges the gap between medicine and the exercise physiology or the science that we do. And so I certainly see a lot more uh, potential and a lot more practical um, merging of medical with exercise physiology and exercise science. I see physicians reaching out more to those professionals in exercise for, you know, consultation with their patients to get them on the right track. And, you know, these diseases that we're starting to see become much more prevalent in our population actually are becoming, you know, so numerous that I think it's overwhelming sometimes to the medical field um, that they need to reach out and get consultation from other professionals to help, you know, guide them. I bring up diabetes often because that's one of the big ones after, after heart disease that we've been seeing just so frequently. And I think that it's an overwhelming large number of people who have diabetes. I think that's only getting worse and worse and worse. And so, as a medical field, it's getting, you know, kind of overwhelming with how to effectively treat and manage these, these patients. And so, you know, certainly it's a team approach, right? So we need nutritionists and dietitians to talk with people about how to manage it. We need your endocrinologist to, to look at that aspect of how to manage it. And we need our exercise physiologists to know, okay, this is a very important component of the disease process and how we can manage diabetes. And so what does our profession say is the best, you know, way to go about it. And so by merging the medicine 
um, you know, the medical field with exercise science and exercise physiology, I think is, is definitely happening and, and is necessary to kind of manage all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a, and I've, I think I told the story once on a podcast before, but you know, I listened to an oncologist speak after I spoke at one of these Northwestern conferences. And he said, you know, he was there, there's no one that impacts a patient more than the current training industry because we get the most direct exposure. Right. You know, where, where, exactly. some, you know, the, the medical field, a lot of times, most of the time doesn't get direct hands-on exposure until, until people are so symptomatic that it's forced. And at that point, things aren't too late, but they, they, they might be farther down the rabbit hole of, of what it takes to reverse the effect. Sure. And I think also another big part of that, Mike, is the fact that it's not where I would like to see it yet, but certainly I think medicine is starting to realize that prevention is so important. Instead of waiting and reacting, we can try to, you know, pre-identify um, and attempt to prevent. And so I think like our risk stratification process, for example, and doing, you know, pre-exercise or pre-participation screenings is so important so that we can try to identify some issues so that once we identify those, we can start working with them through their training program to try to modify risk factors and modify some of those pre-existing conditions so that they don't have to go in and get the diagnosis and we can try to prevent it as much as possible. And so I've always preferred that method versus being reactive and waiting till after the fact. And while I appreciate things like cardiac rehab, and that's such a big part of, of my background and my career, um, my focus has certainly changed to much more of a preventative focus, which is why I love our adult fitness program so much, because that's exactly what we do is we try to identify, we try to prevent, we try to help manage um, before it becomes a big problem. I think that's really where we need to head as a profession. Um, and hopefully we'll get more, um, more of our team of professionals on board with that. Uh, yeah, the best way to fight something is to not get it in the first place. In, in terms of the work to be done, it's a much easier approach. Um, and of course, a much, you know, compared to hospital bills, a financially better approach too, is to, to battle things ahead of time. From the being something that's been heavily in the industry for 10 years now, I've absolutely seen a positive difference in clients that are being told by their doctors to try exercise first. Like, yes, your blood pressure's on the rise. Why don't we try moving a little more? And it's been, it's been very refreshing. And even just the past couple of years, I feel like it's really, really taken a positive turn. Um, like you said, there's room there still to grow, but that's been a huge positive. Effect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, even if we get away from disease processes, even if we talk about just natural effects of aging, right? So we had a participant who came into adult fitness and, you know, he was one of those that, you know, shuffled just a little shuffle while he walked, took about, you know, four inches ahead, you know, moving forward each time he took a step. And so um, certainly recognized that there, you know, maybe he didn't have any kind of medical issues, but certainly we could see some decrease in quality of life because of the way that he walked. He was more prone to falling, more prone to having, you know, injury because of falling. And so just by putting him through a very specialized program, including balance training, um, and, and trying to build up his endurance and his, his strength a little bit. Now he, you know, does the heel to toe walk and he, you know, moves much more differently than when he came in and his quality of life overall is just significantly improved. And as a 70 something year old, that can be life altering, you know, because when, once they start to shuffle and they have a high risk of falling, and then, you know, if they, they do happen to fall and get injured, you know, that can be detrimental for the rest of their life. 
And so to see someone make that big of a progress in just a very short period of time because of appropriate exercise programming uh, was really, really fascinating to watch that progress because he, he's a different person now. Um, and that, that's, I mean, he's participating in our boot camp exercises now. Um, he's doing high intensity interval training stuff now, not to the degree that a 20 something year old would do, but certainly you wouldn't have ever thought that he could do that as a 70 something year old when he first started with us. And so those types of very specific programming that, that come from the background of having the degree, the science, the, the understanding of how the body functions, I think is so very important. And so that's why, you know, obviously me being a professor in, in the degree program, I really stress having that background, having that foundation, and then continuing the research to find more information as we go along. Yeah, the practical side was, was huge because I, I felt ready to engage someone as a human and from a communication standpoint as soon as I left versus, you know, the, the textbooks teach a lot, but like you said, if there's a big component there to, to reading someone and knowing how to assess and know how to catch things. And a lot of that just takes reps. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like swinging a golf club, you know, it's whether you know, whether you're watching a million times or not, until you do it 10,000 times, we're probably not going to have a consistent swing. And so, you know, we really, I mean, you really grilled us in a good way on being able to repeat tests and do it the right way before we were able to continue to, to graduation. You know, you mentioned the 70-year-old and it gets life-altering at any age, but ideally we start way sooner. You know, at the sure. positive of being in the degree was that I, I had these little markers in my head after. Like, you know, I, I'd see my heart rate creep up and be like, oh, well, here's what that means. And like, I, I have prompts that led mm -hmm. me sure. to more of a more preventative lifestyle. You know, we talked in our, our pre-talk about how students don't realize the health they might be in already. Can you talk on that a little bit? You know, what are some of the tests we do and what are some of the numbers you've seen with, with what should be healthy 18, 19, 20-year-olds? Sure. So every single semester, I feel like uh, I, I teach a physical fitness assessment class and I, I feel like every single semester I have a 21, 22-year-old, we're learning how to first measure blood pressure, right? That's the first assessment that we learn. And so we talk about the importance of having healthy blood pressure. We talk about what is blood pressure, how, how does it change in the body and why and, and different things like that. And so then obviously they go around and they test each other. And every single semester, there's someone who's in the hypertensive range. And, you know, I have a serious conversation with that student and they're looking at me like I have three heads. They're like, why are you talking to me about blood pressure problems? This is an old person's disease. This isn't something yeah. I should have to worry about. And I think it's very eye-opening for a lot of students to realize, hey, you have issues with your blood pressure at the ripe young age of 21. And if you don't have it under control, this is how your future may look. And so I think it is very eye-opening. Um, another assessment that we do, you know, that everybody kind of cringes is body composition testing. And so when, when you look a 20-something-year-old in the face and say you are in the obese category and this is what that's going to mean for your future health, I think it's, it's shocking. You know, a lot of people will say, yeah, I know I have a couple extra pounds. I know I'm a little overweight. But when you put that, you know, you are in the obese category, that really resonates, I think, and, and it kind of hits home pretty hard. Um, and even a 20 something year old doesn't want to be in that category, much less, you know, even as we age, but once they hear about the consequences, the lifelong consequences of having those kind of health issues and those, you know, cardiac risk factors, 
I think it, it really strikes home to them that, wait a minute, you know, I can't just preach about this. I also have to be a good role model. I have to keep myself in check. I have to make sure that I'm not in that range. I have to make sure that I'm assessing and taking care of myself because otherwise I'm not, you know, I always tell my students, if, if you can't do what you're asking others to do, there's a problem. Right. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm not, I don't teach skydiving. I would never do skydiving. <laughs> so, you know, if you can't, you know, try to minimize risk factors, if you can't participate in exercise and you can't do these things, it's very hard to be a credible professional to other people. You know, if they're looking at you and they can see that you're obese, but you're talking to, to your clients about weight loss, you, it's really, it's a tough sell, right? And it's not that you're not smart. It's not at all. It's just that if you don't appear as though someone who can follow your own advice and follow, you know, the, the research that you've trying to talk about with them, um, it gets to be very difficult. And so it's very eye-opening, I think, for a lot of students who are going into this field. Uh, because number one, I think a lot of students kind of default to it because, oh, I kind of, I kind of like sports. I kind of like mm -hmm athletes. I, I kind of like working out from time to time. And then they realize, well, there's this whole other kind of big thing behind, I kind of like it, uh, that they just don't even realize initially until they start really getting into the coursework and, and learning about, you know, there's this whole science piece that that's why we're called exercise science. And I think it's, it's very eye-opening for most of them. Yeah, it was, I was sitting in a biomechanics class. I remember the, the first class I took, and it was actually before I transferred at Eastern, was the first time I realized the depth of the degree. And, and I did it for the same reason you just said. I, I, was, I was an athlete that was figured, well, if I do this, I can keep working with athletes. And, it's, and I wasn't the greatest student yet. Right. So in my mind, it was probably, in my, stupidly, an easier path. That's what sure. I initially thought it was. And then you start digging into the physics of it. And, and that's where I felt in love with it. But I could definitely, but I saw equally students that realized, oh man, this is, this isn't the easy path I thought it was going to be. And, <laughs> right. and I'm, I'm going to go the other way. Yeah. I have students who also think, well, I'm going to go exercise science because there's not a lot of math involved and I'm, I'm weak in <laughs> oh, math. Yeah. And then they get to my, you know, metabolic calculations <laughs> and they go, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to be an exercise, but it certainly is. So there's a lot more to it. Which I still use, by the way. I don't know if I told you this, but I, I bought a metabolic cart that I have. Oh, in, yeah. Awesome. That I, that I have in the facility and we still do testing and we do, we do a ton of, well, pre-COVID, we did a ton of Right. That. Yeah, of course, um, everything. So one day we'll go back to that. But uh, That's but awesome. I, but I've got the unit here. So uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, why not? Because you know what benefit you can get from it and you know that it can truly benefit your clients. So more power to you. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, we've even used the numbers differently. We've used it as an assessment tool. We've also used it as a programming tool. Um, mm -hmm. You know, lipid efficiency, where people burn fat, where people need to push power output. And it's another example. People think this is a, an athletic world when it comes to those type of numbers, but it's not. You talked about prevention for the seven-year-old that can't fall. Power output in their step is important sure. at 70, 80, 90, just for, not just the basketball player that is trying to, to get to the rim. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the population that you would be targeting is much greater. You know, the non-athletic population is a, is a lot bigger population than the few, you know, professional athletes that you're going to be training. So definitely worthwhile to, to look into that. Yeah. So, and, and that's something I know we did a lot of, but I'd rather you speak to it, you know, designing programs and how to design a program and the importance to have there's stability, there's coordination, there's power, there's all these different elements when I left, what I really was, people really pick, client-wise, 
people pick a lane when it comes to exercise. And it's an enjoyment lane, right? I really like to lift weights, so I'm just going to lift weights. I like to run, or running is conceptually easier, so I'm just going to get outside, I'm just going to run. And that becomes my, my drill. You know, what, what we combat a lot in here is the asymmetries that come from only doing one type of exercise. And how it's great, and we never want to look down on activity, but people do sometimes work themselves into biomechanical asymmetry through exercise. Um, where does that come in in a curriculum from programming design standpoint, which of course is a, an entire course we took many times. Sure. Um, and so that kind of brings me back to the, how things have changed over the you know, 20 years I've been there. And so first of all, you know, when I was a student, it was very much hammered into our heads that it's aerobic first. And without a solid aerobic foundation, you don't even think about moving into anything like resistance training or anything else. Um, and so certainly, I think you as a professional know that that is not the way that, that our profession thinks anymore. And so we know that equally important or even in some cases more important um, can be muscular strength, muscular endurance and, and balance and coordination and those types of things. And so what I'm seeing a lot is very much what you talk to is the fact that, you know, if you just focus on one component or the other, you leave a whole bunch of uh, untrained components that really develop some asymmetry and cause some issues down the road. Um, and that's why I think so much of the research that we read now on, on high intensity interval training or just interval training in general is so important because you know, everybody knows that the number one excuse people give for not exercising is uh, time, right? Um, and so by doing interval training and by incorporating your, some aerobic with some resistance, with some power, with some, you know, all of these different components in, in a single program, I think that can be really beneficial. Um, and so it's changed pretty dramatically over the course of, of the past 20 years that I've been in, in this field. Um, and you'll see that reflected in the guidelines as well, right? So one of the things that we used to do when with risk stratification is to say, if you're not, you know, exercising at a moderate intensity for 30 minutes or more of aerobic exercise, you're sedentary, right? And so then all these questions came up. Well, what if I'm in the gym six days a week? I'm just not doing 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. Am I still sedentary? You know, I don't think so because I'm doing all these other things. You know, maybe I'm doing 20 minutes of, of vigorous aerobic and then I'm doing resistance and then I'm doing all these other things. But by definition, I was still classified as being sedentary. And so then they came up with, you know, the met minute workload and the met minute way of, okay, now let's look at intensity and total minutes, and your total for the week. And so, you know, it has evolved so much in that way. I think intensity of, of programming has one of those areas that has really evolved and understanding that, you know, a, a one kind of cookie cutter recipe is not okay for every person. And so just to say everybody needs this exact thing before you can do anything else, we've, we realize is just wrong. And because of other, so many other variables like, you know, enjoyment. If I don't enjoy it, I'm not going to stick with it. And if you tell me I have to go run for 45 minutes or walk for an hour and I hate it, it doesn't matter how good of a program it is, I'm never going to do it. And so if you can say, well, okay, we have all these variables to work with. How about if we just work, you know, work it this way to where you're getting a little bit of, of, of everything and you're getting the benefit and you're getting, you know, decreased risk factors. Of course, that's the better way to go. And so 
you know, there's so many things that we have changed over the course of the years. And so certainly if you have someone who's programming correctly, if you have somebody that knows the physiology behind what different training intensities and different intervals can do, um, certainly I think it will prevent things like asymmetry. It will prevent things like, you know, getting better in one component and not in another. And that's the only way that I think is the best way to go right now. And until yeah. we see better research that tells me otherwise, the research right now supports that we need to target everything. Yeah. And we need to do it in a way that is enjoyable for people that is, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, you know, again, we could prescribe a program that takes four hours, but no one's going to do it. Right. And so again, we have, to, it's enjoy, enjoyable. It's within an appropriate time commitment. Um, it's feasible, you know, with COVID we've had people stay at home. And so, you know, we've, we've changed quite a bit. You know, we've, we've had more of a, a functional based training focus over the last several years. And that just, escalated when everybody had to stay home and we're doing things over zoom and on online and you know people don't have equipment at home but guess what you don't need to we can design programs that are based on functional movements of things that you need to be able to do every day um, and they can be effective and they can be uh, enjoyable and so i think that that is our job as a professional is to be able to adapt in that way yeah i and I jumped on those, some a couple of those workouts, and the students really did a great job with it. I've always liked the analogy that kind of sums up everything you just said. I like the, the bucket analogy. You know, we have these different buckets, and all the buckets need to be full. We can't only fill up one bucket. Right, exactly. And if, and if not, we're going to be off balance. We're going to be off kilter. And, and there's always going to be a negative rebound to being so off-centered when it comes to that. Sure. So we, you know, I, I, I talked about heart rate a little bit about as a, a marker that I've used personally, we did a lot of assessing. Do you have tests? Do you have things that you could give to people that are good, like at home, things they can keep an eye on to watch their health? And maybe they're going to be little indicators for them to say, oh, maybe there's something I could focus on. So I use heart rate as an example. You know, we, we always looked at that 60 to 90 range number, right? Our resting heart rate should be somewhere in there. Mine is usually in the low 50s, but there's, you know, there's an athletic and movement component to that. But if I ever saw my resting heart rate creep up to 70, even though it's still in healthy range, I would still be wondering why I'm heading that direction. Do you have other, other examples, other things that people could be doing at home to take a look at their health, especially with COVID going on? It's not always easy to run out and, and get tested and get screened. Sure. What else would you use? So, I mean, I think that one of the wonderful things about, you know, how technology has um, changed over many years is the fact that we can get a lot of this equipment at home, right? So you have heart rate monitors, almost, you know, everyone has a watch and many of the watches that we have can have the capability to monitor heart rate. So you don't have to know how to palpate a heart rate necessarily in order to measure that. Um, you, know, you know, almost every um, store that you go into that has a pharmacy has blood pressure monitors. And for the most part, you know, years ago, they weren't always the the greatest because they didn't hold their calibration well and, and they just weren't very reliable. But blood pressure monitors now have, have really good reliability and they are nicely calibrated and hold the calibration well. I would have a blood pressure cuff at home that you could self-monitor blood pressure. And if you start to see either number creep up, certainly that would be a, a warning flag to, to get checked. I just think that anytime you can do any kind of assessment 
fairly regularly, not every day, not every month, but maybe, you know, once every three, four months, if you can step on a scale or if you can get one of those at-home scales that measures your body fat, that would be another one because we know how important it is to be within a healthy body fat range. Weight is something different, right? Just how much, how much weight you, you have is different than how much body fat you have. And so I would get a body fat monitor. Um, and there, there's other things, you know, here at home, I have an SBO2 monitor to measure oxygen saturation levels. Um, that's because I have some sick relatives who I've been monitoring, you know, just for their general health. But if it's something that, you know, maybe you have a family history of, you know, some type of COPD, or maybe you have, you know, a, a history of some type of lung disease, and you can monitor your oxygen saturation levels, that would be something too. And all of this is pretty reasonable things that you can get, you know, in, in a local store or online. Um, and so I think that that would probably be my big ones. I would look at heart rate. Um, I would look at blood pressure. I would look at body fat percentage. And, and you know, if, if it's necessary because you, you have a concern about pulmonary health, maybe an SpO2 monitor to measure oxygen saturation. Those would be pretty easy, right? And inexpensive for the most part. Well, and I love how you brought up the, the frequency of testing because we're excessive as a community, right? All of us. So I, you know, well, all the people that come in and they're checking the blood pressure twice a day and, and, mm -hmm. wonder, and wondering why the number was different every single time, you know, slightly different. Um, so I do like to tell people to establish a norm. You know, maybe that first week, it's a couple of times, decide what mm -hmm. the actual real norm average number is. And I agree, a, a quarterly assessment, assuming you don't have pre-existing issues. Sure. Um, is, is probably enough. I also laugh because it has changed from me actually teaching people how to take a resting heart rate and to tell them to do it first thing in the morning, which they never remember. Right. <laughs> uh, th three days in a row and get the average and that's your number. And it's so funny because now I, I slip into that sometimes and people go, well, I'll just use my watch. Why would I? Right. Exactly. I mean, they sleep their watch uneven. So, yeah. I mean, it's right there, you know? Yeah. So, and, and it, you can go back on the app and you can look at what it was while you were sleeping, which is the yeah. even better resting heart yes. rate, right? So, yeah. Technology has made our lives much, much easier. You know, I have a couple of relatives who have issues with dysrhythmias and on their phone, on the back of their phone, they just have these little electrodes that they put their fingers on and they can see their heart rhythm. And if it's a concern, it'll send a message to their physician and they get notified you need to come in for a visit or no, this one's okay. Um, and so it's pretty fascinating with all the apps that we have out there and with all of the technology that's available, really there, there's not a lot of excuse to not utilize some of that to kind of keep a self-assessment. Um, and, and like we said, not every day, not twice a day, like you said, establish a norm and then kind of see as you go throughout the year, is it creeping up or is it staying about the same? And then, you know, if it starts to show some, some creeping up effect, then maybe it's time to get that addressed. So certainly I would do that. Yeah. It, it's about awareness, right? It's about just one, it's, it's education. It's just knowing the numbers and people that, that work with, you know, your adult fitness program or work with, you know, myself or people like me, we give these, these bits and pieces out, but for the average person, it's just knowing, right? It's just knowing and measuring. Otherwise years go by and we wait for symptoms to tell us that things right. are an issue. So I, I love, so I love these cause these are, they're easy. They're simple. Um, I've, I even use a, um, I've got an app that it's a CNS, it's a tip, one of those, it's a tap app. So it's a, it's a readiness app. So you tap it for whatever, I think it's 60 seconds. And then, uh, it tells you your number. And if the number is drastically different, you know, it's, uh, gives me an idea of where my system is that day. Um, sure. so I've used things like that as well. Um, yeah. I, I love that. 
Well, and I think an important thing that you mentioned is that a lot of times we wait for symptoms. And the thing um, that we have to remember with things like hypertension, most of the time there are no symptoms until you have a big event, right? Until, until you have the big stroke or until you, um, you know, are in the hospital for another big event. And then that's when the blood pressure is measured and it's find out, you know, you find out it's through the roof. And so there, there are lots of issues that can arise with your health that are asymptomatic for a long period of time before and if you can address them way back when you know you're less likely to have stroke or a massive heart attack or something like that and so kind of waiting until symptoms arise is is the whole thing i was talking about the reactionary mode that i i tried to preach against and to do more preventative types of things which includes regular assessment and that's why every single person that comes into our program has to be assessed annually they have the option to have, you know, more frequent assessments throughout the year just so that we can make sure that we, you know, especially if they have issues that we've identified such as hypertension or if they're borderline or if they have issues with body composition and we're trying to make changes, we offer much more frequent screenings than just once a year uh, because it is important to keep track of that, you know, set short-term goals to reach your long-term goal. And so if, if you're waiting 12 months before you try to figure out if you are making any progress, then that's probably too long. We need to have more frequent checks to see how you're progressing along. Yeah. I, well, I love that you brought that up. They're called silent killers for a reason, right? right. They, they, they creep up. I've read a newer piece of research about, you know, dementia having a 20 year shelf life. So for 20 years, there's probably significant existing readable physiological differences in the body that will not become symptomatic. And for a dementia, just like a one-time infarction, heart attack, there is a too late, right? There is a too late to some, some stuff reversible, but some stuff is not, you know? Um, so keeping ahead is, is so crucially important. Has being a professor and being in the field, I'm, I'm assuming the answer here, but maybe how, how have you changed your own health and life and habits um, just from being a professional in this field? So, I mean, I think it started at the very beginning, just like I was talking about my students in class. If I'm not a role model for what I'm preaching, I don't feel very credible. I don't feel like students can look at me and say, you know, I, I believe in what you're teaching me because, you know, you, you look like you are following your own advice. And if I, if I, if my student, you know, and I even like to work out at, EIU to make sure my students see me doing it, you know, because I can work out at home as well. Uh, but I want them to see me doing it because I really believe that that hits home to them that I not only talk about it, but I also do it because I believe in it. And so I think certainly teaching in the field has emphasized the importance of doing that. I also think that, uh, you know, as I get older and I start to identify the, the, changes that occur with aging um, and the things that I used to be able to do that I watch my 20-something-year-old college kids do and, and I, I can't do some of those things anymore. Um, certainly, I, I remind myself the importance of changing the way that I train and making sure that I'm you know, training the way that my body needs to be trained for the decade of life that I'm in and, and the types of physical changes that have occurred with my own aging. And so it, it just keeps it current with me. You know, if it's something that you talk about every single day, I think it just stays so current with you that it's so ingrained in your entire life and every fiber that I, I just, am, it's who I am anymore. It's not just what I do. 
you know? And so yeah. I think that makes a big difference. And as a parent too, right? I mean, there's, there's oh, us as a professional, sure. but it's one of my favorite questions is, you know, what are, what are, what are things I'm noticing that I'm becoming neurotic on as a parent um, and what I don't. And, you know, nutrition is the biggest one. Yeah. My guys are still little, but, uh, but how, how do you not, you know, when you see the research roll in and you see these effects, it's hard to not really, like you said, it's hard to not keep it a focus when it's in your face and coming out of your mouth every day. Yeah, but absolutely. Um, I love the role model mentality because it goes so far and it's a, it's another, it's a great message is you don't ever, you don't even know who you're a role model to. You never know who's watching or who's listening and, you know, whether it's a spouse or a partner or a, a coworker who you didn't realize has noticed that, that you're a positive influence on them. So I love that. And I remember seeing you. I remember always seeing you. Yeah, have you seen big, you know, we, we talk about more like on the reversal side now, you know, we, you work, the adult fitness population, what are the average ages you have in the so adult fitness population? We see everyone from 21 years of age up to a hundred. And so I would right. say that our current average is more in the 50 to 55 year old category. Although we are seeing uh, an increase in our 40 year old population. Um, and even in our 30 year old um, kind of triathlete kind of population. Um, so we see everyone from people who participate in triathlons to people who, um, like I said, are shuffling as they're walking in and, and they yeah. just need some quality of life changes. And so um, I'd say probably about 50, 55 would be average right now. Are you seeing a lot? And I realize you know, there's, a, there's a disclaimer here because there's a lot that, you know, there's a genetic component to this too, that we can't always guarantee these type of things. But do you see a lot of reversal off of medications and, you know, big drastic um, drops in certain markers? And if so, what, what have you seen? So I would say um, certainly a lot more. Uh, do I see a lot? Um, I don't, let me see how to put that. I don't know that physicians are always so willing to take people off of medication unless the patient, him or herself, kind of pushes for it. Um, and so when I have a, a client who comes in, and I had one recently, who, for example, who um, she came in, she was dedicated to improving her health. She realized that she was getting older. Her health was not where she wanted it to be. She was getting ready to retire, decided that she needed to make some changes if she wanted to enjoy her retirement. And so she started exercising, something that she hadn't done in years, probably since high school. Um, and so she was taking medication because she was diabetic. She was taking medication because she had hypertension. She was taking, um, you know, medication because her heart rate was high. All these things that you typically see as people age and you think, oh, well, that's kind of normal. You know, as we age, we kind of expect to go on cholesterol medicine and we kind of expect to go on blood pressure medicine. And so she had all of them. And so she started exercising and she hated it. And so she came to our program and we tried to find things that she enjoyed. You know, I keep talking about this enjoyment component as well as something that worked within her time schedule. Um, and so we developed a program for her that she really, truly enjoyed. And we also paired her up with other people being students or other clients that she could get to know and build a relationship with them and have some accountability with them. And over the course of about a year, she lost significant amount of weight. She, talk to her physician frequently at her quarterly visits about, you know, my goal is to get off medicine. And so she had a, a physician who was willing to listen to her and to make adjustments to medication, you know, not right away. He didn't just take her off of everything. He certainly was reducing dosing to see, okay, let's see what your blood work shows the next time you come. And so over a period of about two years, you know, she lost a bunch of weight that first year. She kept exercising. She was watching her diet. And over the course of a couple of years, she doesn't have any medication anymore. Um, that's 
huge. You know, that's huge from a, you know, mental aspect of, you know, I am healthy enough. I, I don't have to have this medication. I did this for myself. That's huge from an aspect of financially, I don't have to pay for this. And I'm, you know, for people, especially on a limited income, that's, that's enormous because insurance doesn't always pay for everything. That's huge from, you know, a side effect point of view, because almost every medication has some form of side effect that they have to then take another medication to offset the side effects. Um, and so in so many ways, it was a big improvement for her. And, and we've seen that in more than just her. We, we have a, a solid big group of people who've made you know, the same types of changes. Now, as I mentioned, not all physicians are always going to listen and sit down with a person and, and go into that much detail and discussion and, and really consider. And so I think it's important that, that people find that physician that will sit down with them and say, okay, here's my goal. And, you know, because that, the physician should just be a facilitator of you meeting, reaching your, your health goals, right? They, they just help you facilitate that. And so if you go in and you say, my goal is I want to be off as many medications as I can be off. Certainly, if, if I have to be on something, sure. But if I can get off this medication because I've lost weight and I no longer need it, and I want a physician who's willing to discuss that with me and make those changes and follow me and track me and things like that. Um, so I think that it, it kind of would be more if we had people who pushed it a little bit more um, because we do see huge quality of life changes in people who are exercising and in people who have always exercised but have started to change their program or to better address their physiological needs. Um, we see a lot of big improvements there. People who aren't going to, you know, the chiropractor every week because their body hurts or they're not taking, you know, Tylenol or, you know, ibuprofen every week because they have aches and pains. And so we find that a lot of people, even in those little ways, see improvement. Um, and and that's, that's huge to me, you know. Um, I just am remembering another lady who over the course of, uh, with COVID and people having to stay home, we, we have initiated all these challenges, right? So we had a June challenge where um, their goal was to get 24 hours of exercise throughout the month of June. So from June 1st to the end of June, we, we want you to accumulate 24 hours of exercise. So it's just for a day. And we had a participant who said, you know, that motivated me so much with that accountability that I have been exercising about an hour, six days a week. And um, she said that she feels great. She has seen an improvement in her waistline. She feels better in her clothes. She's been able to decrease one of her blood pressure medications. And so that's huge. That is a huge benefit to anyone who puts forth that effort and is willing to work it out. So definitely. Huge for that person. Huge for the students who now fully get to see the impact of what their work is going to be when they are released into the general community and huge for the people that are that the other community or the other absolutely uh, the other members in the program because now it's a oh man well if you could do this maybe i can do the same i think you brought up a crucial piece of feedback that people need to hear and it's the way you communicate with your your medical professional and your fitness professional I tell my clients, all of my clients and my athletes, they have to over-communicate with me. I, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know if your goal has changed or if a new thing has come up, I need to know. If you mm -hmm. are questioning something, I need to know. Otherwise, I can't make the change with you. Physicians are, are human beings too, and they've got big patient loads. And 
if you become, which is my personal opinion, what I've seen, if you become that, that quiet, yes, man, patient, it very often becomes a very easy appointment for them. Yep. Great. Sure. Stand, stand the meds. See you later. I guess what's working is working. Right. So it's, you, you have to force that conversation. You have to force that physician to say, well, hold on. I don't want this to be a nine minute appointment. I, I need some time. Let's sit down. Mm-hmm. I have, I have questions and, uh, and exploring those things, which can, can kind of wrap back around to those self tests and self assessments. If people are educated on that and they have a way to, to mark their own, they have information to take to the physician saying, well, I know what my healthy markers are. They were, exactly. they, they were here. You put me on meds. I'm measuring. They're not there anymore. Do I need this medication anymore? Right. And so I, I'm very careful in, in making sure that I, I don't um, convey the wrong message, right? So a lot of times we see people who say, okay, my blood pressure was high. I started exercising. And in the course of this, my blood pressure is better, right? That doesn't automatically mean you get to be off your medicine because it's probably likely that the medicine is why yes. your blood pressure. And so it takes time. It's not something that's going to occur in just a couple of exercise sessions or in a couple of months. And so certainly I have to be very careful talking to clients to, to not go into their physician and, or just stop without consulting their physician and say, I don't need this anymore because my blood pressure numbers are good. That's not always just the case. And so that's why it's so important for you to have a team of professionals so your physician can look at your numbers and say, okay, yeah, sure, your numbers are much better than when they started, but let's decrease the dosage perhaps, or let's not take it as frequently perhaps. And so the physician needs to have some input into that. But certainly it's, it's on the patient or the client to engage that conversation and to initiate it and to say, you know, this is my goal and this is what I would like to see happen. And I need you to facilitate that. I need you to make sure that we can get there so that eventually, if it's possible, I would like to be off this medication. And so I, I just want to be careful to, to make sure that people realize that just because you want to get off of it doesn't mean it's, it's medically okay. Um, just because you start to see better numbers doesn't mean you can automatically stop medication or anything like that. But certainly self-assessment, certainly initiating those conversations, and of course, doing the hard work to get to the goal is really what it takes overall. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you made that that delineation because it's it's about the communication. That's what we're pushing. It's about yes. asking the questions. Your physician is still the medical professional. They're still the ones that should make the right decisions for you. It's just about making sure that you are putting them in the place that they have the information and know that your intent, this way you can make the best decisions together. Yeah, exactly, I, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I'm looking at time and I want to respect yours. Is there a way that people could follow the IU program or is there, is there a way that they could see more of uh, your work and research? Um, you know, what's the best way for people to continue to self-learn? Um, so certainly they can go to our kinesiology, sport and recreation website and see what we um, do within our department. And then within our department website, we have a faculty tab where they can see all the research that faculty is doing um, so that they can you know, look at some of our, our faculty research. And, and also we have a tab for our adult fitness program. And if people are interested in kind of seeing what type of community outreach program we do, we have lots of information on that website. That goes through everything from our pre-assessment or pre-participation screening process through um, you know, some of the things that we offer throughout the year. I think that would be a good place to start. The adult fitness program itself has a Facebook page. And so EIU Adult Fitness Program is our Facebook page. Um, and then also we've been posting a lot of workout videos on our YouTube channel. So we have an EIU Adult Fitness uh, YouTube channel that people can subscribe to that and see a lot of our 
high-intensity interval training workout programs. We have some balance training programs, Pilates. Um, we have some stretching programs on there. And so people can just log in and watch one of the videos and, and do them at home or in, in kind of their own privacy. So certainly, or, you know, email me. I'd be glad to talk. I'll put that on there as well. So I will put all that in the show notes so people can find it. I'm going to put some of those normative values for the heart rate and blood pressure so people have a way to, to at least have a, a good starting point for the average person. And that'll all be available in the show notes. Dr. Awesome. Ruhal, this was awesome. Thank you so much for being Thank on. you, Mike. I really appreciate it. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, I look forward to coming down and, and making a visit this spring. Hopefully we can really do that. Yeah, that would be awesome. We would really yeah. appreciate seeing you there. I would love to. All right. Well, if you can stick around for a second, uh, everyone, thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at marhealthandperformance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.